be beginning a series this morning. may not actually do so much teaching this morning, but more, I guess, laying a little bit of a platform for the lessons that will follow. And I would encourage you to be here for the following lessons. They are going to be valuable, I hope. I'd like to hope that the ministry is always valuable to us in the Church of the Lord. Amen. There's a few away today. That's, that's, uh, that's okay. Bless the Lord. Acts chapter 2. We start and read at verse 1. Strap yourselves in. We're going to read the whole chapter. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? And others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaking concerning him, for David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, 
neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou hast made me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, and if you cannot quote this verse, I would encourage you to commit it to memory. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls and they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers and fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles and that all that believed were together and had all things common sold their possessions and goods parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Amen. Bless the Lord. That's a long reading. I thank you for your patience. But there should be something about Acts, the second chapter, that stirs your spirit. If you're filled with the Holy Ghost, when you read that chapter, it should not just be old. It should not just be, all oh, this again. But there should be something in the Holy Ghost that moves in us when we read that chapter. Bless the Lord. I had, to, I, as I was reading through, I wanted to stop and preach about a dozen times from verses I was reading. I was trying to stay on track with what I want to bring this morning. But it is a wonderful piece of Scripture. Amen. And we're beginning a series this morning, as I uh, mentioned recently, on apostolic identity. Apostolic identity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for your word, for its power, for its life, Lord God, for its never-changingness, Lord God, for the fact that it is the same. And we can trust in it, we can stand on it, and it will never let us down, Lord God. And I pray today that as we begin this, this series of lessons, Lord, that you would be with us, that you'd open understanding, that you'd give us a fresh love for you, a fresh love for truth, a fresh love for your word, Lord God, I do pray. And Lord, as we read in this last verse, Lord, that you would give us singleness of heart we pray in jesus name amen bless the lord the book of acts 
or its more correct name, the Acts of the Apostles, is the scriptural account of the beginning of a period of history that church historians sometimes call the Apostolic Age, usually referring to the time of Jesus through to late in the first century. Now, every denomination or group that calls themselves Christians claims a connection to this portion of history. And the word apostolic is used in church names and documents and on buildings and on sanctuaries in a lot of various applications. An example of that, a fairly pertinent example, is that the official residence of the Pope in the Vatican is called the Apostolic Palace. Be a nice place to live. And while it's an easy thing to claim to be apostolic, it's not an as easy a thing to establish or to demonstrate that, that claim is accurate. This happens with a lot of words. As another example, we've just read the second chapter of Acts, which talks to us about the day of Pentecost. The word Pentecostal is used in many different applications, and many churches call themselves Pentecostal, and this is usually understood to mean that they believe, or they at least once believed, that speaking in tongues as the Holy Ghost gives the utterance is an experience that's for the church today. Now, some people that once claimed that experience no longer believe it's necessary, and yet they may still use the word Pentecostal in their name. In fact, uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, Pentecostal organizations in the world, now statistics suggest that less than 50% of their members have had the experience of being filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. And yet in their name and in their documents and their statements of doctrine, they still call themselves Pentecostal. But to call yourself Pentecostal is one thing. To be Pentecostal is another. Because if we're Pentecostal, then what happened on the day of Pentecost happens to us. That we still believe that when God pours out His Spirit upon all flesh that as that Spirit of God moves on us and fills us, that we will speak with other tongues. Amen. The emphasis is not on the speaking in tongues. The emphasis is on the Spirit of God. And we need to be careful, even as Pentecostals, that that is where our focus is. You know, don't get hung up on speaking in tongues. Get hung up on surrendering to the Spirit of the Lord, and speaking in tongues will be a byproduct of that. You know, sometimes we get a little bit backwards in our understanding. You should never seek to practice speaking in tongues. Somebody's ever told you to practice speaking in tongues? That's a misunderstanding. You don't practice speaking in tongues. You practice yielding to the Spirit of God. And the Lord will flow through and you'll speak with other tongues. Because the devil can counterfeit anything that's genuine. And, you know, your, me your human memory is actually capable of remembering things that you say. Even if you don't say them. We have to be careful that when we are speaking in tongues, that it's because we're surrendering to the Spirit of the Lord. You know, if, if I'm not trying to be disrespectful or anything, but if I was to make up some gibberish that I didn't know what it meant, you know, said blah, 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 or whatever, your memory is capable of remembering that. Now, the first time the Spirit of God flowed through, that would, you know, but if we say the same thing every single time, we've got to say, Lord, let your Spirit refresh me. Let it flow through me again. I'm not wanting anybody to doubt their experience. Please don't misunderstand me. But if when you pray, the only time you speak in tongues, you say the same thing every single time. You're in a relationship with the Lord. Try that with one of your human relationships, only ever saying the same thing to that person every single time you speak. See how that goes. 
Bless the Lord. But it is about our focus as Pentecostals is on the Spirit of God. But speaking in tongues is the biblical evidence that we have received the Spirit of God. Amen. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. I just digress there. Bless the Lord. So to claim an identity is not necessarily the same as being able to demonstrate an identity. It's easy to claim something. It's easy to throw a label on a building or on a, a job description or and just but to actually fulfill that. You know, you see you see churches, you see a lot of very creative names for churches, and there's nothing wrong with having a good name for your church, but you can call your church the holy anointed miraculous love of God, wonder working, fantasticest place in the world, but that doesn't mean that's what it is. You can give it the label, but if it doesn't have that which supports the label, its identity is under question. And we claim, not by pride, but by Scripture, to be a Pentecostal church. We claim to be an apostolic church. We do not claim to be perfect. In fact, we're far from it. But we are striving to both preserve and to promote an apostolic identity. Amen. But what does that mean? We can get excited about that, but what does that really mean? A true apostolic identity can be found in three areas. The first one, and I think most of you will be familiar with where I'm going today, but the first one is an apostolic doctrine or teaching. What did the apostles teach and believe? What did they teach and believe about God, about who Jesus is, about the gospel and about salvation? In the 15th chapter of Acts, there's a big meeting in Jerusalem. It's what's often referred to as the first church council, first official meeting that the elders got together to deal with a controversial subject. And they got together and what they were dealing with was what they were going to require of the Gentile Christians in relation to the law of Moses. Because the Jews had all these laws. These non-Jews were being born again into the kingdom of God and there was some confusion about do we have to do all the things that Moses said? Do the Jews just do it? Do the Gentiles just do it? And they brought the elders together and the elders discussed and they prayed and they did their best to follow the leading of the Spirit, and they made a decision on that. But throughout history, there have been church councils in the 2nd century, the 3rd century, the 4th century, and on and on. If you go and look them up on the internet, you just Google church councils, you'll find them. The Council Nicaea, Constantinople, all these different places where religious leaders got together to discuss issues that they were struggling with. Now, in nearly every church council between the 2nd and don't quote me on this, but maybe the 6th or 7th century, the issue was always about who was Jesus, who was the Holy Ghost, who was the Father, had all these things fit together. But that was never an issue in the 1st century. That's an issue they created for themselves later on by introducing philosophies. But the, the apostles had no debate or no confusion about who God was and who Jesus was. They knew that there was one God. They knew that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, God manifest in flesh. There was no debate amongst the apostles. You don't find anywhere that Paul and Peter and James and John ever got together and said, look, I'm having a hard time with this Trinity thing. Because they didn't even know the Word, because the Word did not even exist in the first century. And so if we are going to talk about what is apostolic doctrine... What did the apostles believe? They believed that there was one God and that his name was Jesus 
and that only through that name could you be saved. That's apostolic doctrine. Now, we can put the biggest sign in town across the front of this place and say apostolic church. But if what's happening in here is not being taught in the same fashion as it was then, then that sign's not worth a whole lot. Talking about our identity. Amen. They declared that people had to be baptized in that name and in that name alone. They didn't present options. They only ever baptized in Jesus' name. You don't read about discussion or debate or did it really matter. It's just what they did. It wasn't confusing for them. And in some ways, they are benefited by living on the other side of the creation of the doctrine of the Trinity. We deal with that in our age. The apostles didn't have to deal. They had plenty of other problems of their own. Don't worry. But the apostles preached and taught the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the gospel message. They taught that salvation was made possible by the grace of God and taken hold of through faith. That's what the apostles taught. The message of repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and receiving the Holy Ghost was consistent wherever they went. Wherever they taught, wherever they preached, wherever they traveled, the doctrine did not change. It was not customized to suit situation. It was the same. It was the apostles' doctrine. They taught that you could be healed, that you could be delivered, that you could be made whole by the power of Jesus' name. And they taught that Jesus is coming back for his church. They taught that Jesus is coming back for the bride of Christ. The apostles looked for the return of the Lord in their time. And the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ at any moment without warning is part of the apostles' doctrine. It's a part of being apostolic. Amen. So apostolic doctrine, we're going to deal with these subcategories more in weeks to come. I'm just giving you an overview this morning. One of the identifying factors of apostolic identity is apostolic doctrine. What we teach must line up with what they teach. You know, if the, if, if the apostles were somehow able to get in a time machine, I don't really believe in time machines. I grew out of that at a young age. But if Peter and James and Paul somehow found time travel and it brought them to Northside Pentecostal Church at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, it means they would beat some of you here, but that's okay. They would be amazed by some of the things we have. They wouldn't, we have electricity. We, they certainly didn't have chairs as comfortable as you have to sit on. They, they didn't even have church buildings. They didn't have microphones or pianos. Uh, there was some, they, they obviously had some forms of stringed instruments throughout the Old Testament times. But there'd be a lot of things as far as technology and progress and all those things, the industrial age, that, they, that we take for granted that would blow them away. If they saw any of you talk on your mobile phone, they would think that was really crazy. But I hope that when we begin to worship God and the Spirit of God begin to move and people begin to yield to the Spirit of God and speak in other tongues, that there'll be something that I don't understand all this other stuff, but this I recognize. And when a preacher stands in a pulpit and talks about the fact that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, that they would be able to say, hey, I preached that last Sunday in synagogue. And we pray for the sick. They say, hey, we did that last weekend in church as well. There needs to be something that they would recognize in our midst or we're missing the mark. 
They don't dress like we do. Peter would say, what's that funny thing you got hanging around your neck, Pastor? And I'd say, it's a cultural thing. Be glad you don't have to wear them. There'd be a lot of things they wouldn't get. But there should be the things that matter. You know, when you travel and you visit apostolic churches in different cities and even different countries, you will have that experience. And many people have testified about it again and again of how you can come into a church where you've never met anybody before, don't know their names, can't speak their language, but as you begin to have service, there is something that this is right. And if the apostles would not feel that, at least to a point in our midst, now they'd probably find it pretty, you know, the apostle Paul would probably find it pretty amazing that we might use one of his epistles as our text. He didn't have a New Testament to preach from. He was writing it as he was going along. But there should be enough commonality between what we have and what they had and if there isn't then god help us to line ourselves back up with the apostles doctrine bless the lord the second thing that we ought to have to establish an apostolic identity is an apostolic experience what did the apostles experience did their walk match their talk or did they spend their times in academic institutions discussing schools of theology and considering the various pros and cons of each? Now in our world, there are many schools of theology that you can go to where there are people, there are scholars that are educated in ancient cultures and languages to a level far beyond you and I that could very quickly make us feel like we don't know much at all. But they can expound on what was happening in world history and Bible times and talk about how different practices developed and, and archaeological evidence for the things that we find in the word of the Lord. But in many of these places, they do not make a literal connection between the examples of Scripture and present-day life. They may consider principles and moral lessons, but you go to some of these theological schools and colleges and campuses and you ask a simple question like what does it mean to be filled with the holy ghost like they did in the book of acts and to them it's foreign it's antiquated it's from the pages of history they may have some teaching they may have some doctrine but they don't have an experience teaching is great but if it's just teaching it's not enough to have an apostolic identity you see when the apostle paul taught church history and he was a scholar he was a theologian he was a very highly educated man he won all the bible quizzing tournaments when he went to sunday school trust me you you get a glimpse of the apostle paul he was a competitive man trust me when it came to memory verses when he was a kid i promise you he got the medal every year he was just that seems to be the kind of guy he was but you have to remember when he preached and when he taught from scripture he only had the old testament which in his day, its last update was 400 years prior. There were 400 years of intertestamental silence between Old and New Testaments. And so when Paul preached, he was using a history book. But when he preached from the Old Testament, and he spoke about the God of the Old Testament, and he spoke about the power of God, he was not talking about it in a historical, analytical fashion. But he was talking about how that same power, was present in his day 
and was available to be experienced in an even greater way than Moses and Abraham and David had because of what Jesus did. So even though he taught from things that were historical, he made them an experience. He brought them into their lives. When he taught those things, people didn't leave and say, well, wasn't that an interesting lesson? Wasn't that? I never knew that about David. I never knew that. Wasn't that fascinating that he was whatever? That wasn't what happened. When he talked about repentance, people repented. When he taught them about being baptized in Jesus' name, people got baptized in Jesus' name. When he said there's a promise that came from the Father, people received that promise. When he said you can be healed, you can be delivered, you can experience the miraculous, those things happened. Their apostolic experience was a product of their apostolic doctrine. And that's part of what gave them apostolic identity. God help us to desire the fullness of the apostolic experience. And I believe we do. I believe God wants to do more. But don't, don't get discouraged and say, well, we don't see this. We see, we see a lot more miracles than you and I notice. Every time somebody is filled with the Holy Ghost, it's the greatest miracle. It's more important than being healed in your body. People say, well, you know, I, I've never seen the blind eye opened. Okay, how many of you know a blind person? I don't know any blind people. I mean, these, the people with a lot of these ailments filled the streets in gospel times. God still does heal the blind eyes. He still does heal the lame leg. And many of you can testify about healing you've received in your bodies. Let's not think we don't have what they had. I don't think we should just get comfortable and say it's enough. But we have the power of God in our midst. We see healings and we need, when you are healed or God answers a prayer, you need to testify. You need to say, Brother Simon, God healed me. Can I testify? Because your testimony increases other people's faith. Because your experience lines up with our doctrine and establishes our identity. Amen. We're talking about apostolic identity. We have to have the apostles' doctrine. The end of Acts chapter 2 tells us that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They didn't go left. They didn't go right. Unfortunately, those things begin to happen in the generation that followed them. They were happening. The apostle John was the, they tell us he was the apostle that lived the longest out of the original 12. He, he lived almost up to the end of the first century. And when you read his epistles, his later writings, you begin to see the warnings of the things that were trying to come into the church, the things he was concerned about, the doctrines, the practices, even in Paul's writings to Timothy, written somewhere in the mid-60s AD, he was seeing things that were trying to press their way into the church. And when you study church history, particularly in the second and third century, you see that these things found a way in because men were not guarding themselves. That's why Paul said, take heed unto yourself and to the doctrine. And in doing so, you'll save yourself and them that hear you. That's what he instructed Timothy. These elders weren't prophets of doom. They knew that the devil was going to come against the church. Because in the New Testament church, after the day of Pentecost, for the first time in history, man had had the power of God resident in him and was able to say to the devil, get lost. 
for the first time, man had access to both the forgiveness of sins and the power to overcome sin. And the devil was going to do everything he could to tear that down, and he's still trying today. And just as Paul said to Timothy, I declare to you today, take heed unto your doctrine. Know what you believe. Don't know what your pastor believes. Know what you believe. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. And that's really a lot of what this series is about. Amen. Apostolic doctrine and apostolic experience. Bless the Lord. And the third and final piece of the puzzle that will help us to establish an apostolic identity is to have an apostolic lifestyle. This one won't get you as excited as the last two did because this one requires something of us. How did the apostles and the churches that they led demonstrate and live out Christianity in a first century environment? How did they live day to day? How did righteousness and holiness impact and confront their world? You see, when you read the epistles, much of the teaching found there focuses on instructing believers how to live a godly life. It deals much with the attitudes of our hearts. It deals much with the changing and the renewing of our minds, but it also addresses moral issues and conduct issues and behavior issues. It deals with the inside of man and the outside of man. The epistles are full of that instruction. They didn't just travel to places, get people born again and move on and leave them to flounder around on their own. And getting people born again is the primary purpose of the gospel. But if I get born again and I don't know how to live for God and go back into sin, well, greater is the tragedy. And that was why so much of the New Testament deals with us being saved and staying that way. Amen. People didn't like to change their ways in the first century any more than they do today. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Not everybody wants to live for God. But the apostles confronted their culture and their society. See, sometimes people in our day make the mistake of thinking that it was easier for the first church than it is today. That our postmodern world is different and that we need to be culturally relevant and to appeal to our society. But that really is a misunderstanding. The culture that the apostles ministered to and lived in daily, I think was easily as confronting as ours, if not more so. If you consider in Israel, where the gospel message first was preached, they turned their national identity upside down. Even Jesus did. He said, you've heard it said, but I say You've heard it said this, but I say. This is what Moses said, but I say. He began to confront what was, was not just their, their preferences, it was woven into their very identity as a nation. And he began to confront that. And Paul, for all of the things that he experienced, Paul's most passionate opponents were his own brethren. The ones that opposed Paul more than any idolatrous, wicked, godless nation were those that were from the nation of God, the nation of Israel, because he confronted them, challenged them, and told them they had to change. They had to change what they believed. They had to change what they practiced. They had to change what they lived. And they hated him for it. And they pursued him. They weren't just happy enough to say, well, I'm not going when he's preaching. I'm not going to go to synagogue because Paul's preaching this morning and I don't like him. 
they opposed him so much they followed him from town to town. They said, where's Paul? Oh, he's going to Ephesus, right, we'll go with after him. Where's he going next? We'll go there as well. Wonderful people of God. But they pursued him and treated him like he was trying to destroy their lives when really he was trying to help them have the life that Jesus came to bring. When he, had, when he said, I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You see, then the church spread. It took some persecution, but the church spread beyond Israel's borders into the nations around about where peoples and cultures that had never, ever heard the name of Jesus Christ, much less the idea of Christianity. Now, there are some places today in this world, they say, where you can go and they've never heard of Jesus. They've never heard of Christianity, but they are a very small minority of places. You can travel in most of the known world. Now, the opinion of Christianity varies a lot. But there's not many people in 2015 that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. They've never, they don't know if you say, you know, I am a Christian. They don't at least have at least a very basic idea of what you're talking about. But when Paul and Barnabas, Silas and Timothy and, and Titus and these other young men that traveled with the apostles ministered, they went into places where when they said Jesus, it might as well have been anybody else's name. Those people had no idea who Jesus was. And Paul and those with him traveled into places where they had to, even, they had to been, begin, begin to tell them who Jesus was, why he came, why they were, yes, I'm sorry, but you're a sinner and you need to be saved from your sins. So you think the world we live in is hard. The society that confronted the apostles was a place where idols were worshipped, where immorality was standard behavior. We're going to church, and forgive me if this is a bit blunt, but they went to their temples and prostitution and child abuse was a part of their worship service. Let that sink in. We come to church, we have a nice, clean Praise the Lord, sing a few songs. Temple prostitution, including children, was a standard practice in their religion. That was the world the Apostle Paul went into. And we say, well, you know, people think that Christianity is a bit strong. It's a bit hard for them to grasp. Paul went into that kind of society. They were confronted with incredible wickedness. But everywhere they went, when they preached the gospel, they healed the sick, they saw the demon-possessed delivered, the people rejoiced and the whole city turned to God. No, they beat them. They threw them into prison. They said that everything they brought was wrong and was breaking their culture and against their society and unfair to their people. Read your newspaper. What does that sound like? Christians believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, that's discrimination and prejudice and bias and so on and so forth and hate speech. You think we've got it hard. Think about what the Apostle Paul had to deal with. Brand new convert in the city of Ephesus, gets baptized, gets the Holy Ghost, comes to church for the first time, wants to know where the sacrifices are and where are the temple prostitutes talking about basic Christian discipleship right there. No, actually, we don't have prostitutes in our church. Oh, this is a different kind of church. There's nothing wrong with the church of God being different. There's nothing wrong with being... If you're worried about being different, then 
Christianity is not for you. I don't say that to say, to say leave. I'm saying, but if you think you can serve God and not be different, that's going to be really, really hard. We are meant to be different. Because if we are the same, we cannot help this dying world that we are in. Bless the Lord. We are living in a time, really, when you consider history, that is actually returning full circle to the godlessness of the first century. Because so much of society, particularly Western society, has some Christianity in its foundations, at least, in its legal system. They talk about a Judeo-Christian legal system. Much of the Western world has that, and a lot of them are discarding it. But we are seeing a time when the things of God are being thrown out wholesale, and we are returning to the same kind of vile wickedness that Paul faced in places like Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi. We're talking about an apostolic identity this morning. The church has always been counter cultural, or in other words, in opposition to the culture of its time. Not to be different for the sake of being different. Nobody likes to be different just, just to be the different person. But because sinful humanity has always run at an opposing course to God. So the church is called to be counter-cultural. Bless the Lord. So over the next few Sunday mornings, we're going to consider these questions. And trust me, I may con- we might confront us, it'll confront me. Do we have a complete apostolic identity? When we say we're apostolic believers, what does that mean? What does that mean about our doctrine, about our experience, and the way we live in 2015? Because if it's just a label on our door and reflects something that our elders and our forefathers used to practice, then it's not our identity. It's our history. There are many denominations. I'm not interested in throwing rocks. But there are denominations who in their very name is a doctrine that they have compromised on. The Baptist Church, it's fairly obvious what they believe fairly strongly on when they formed that organization. If you talk to them about what baptism is now, it's... It's part of their history. It's not part of their identity anymore. And I'm not, please, I'm not throwing rocks at Baptists. It's an easy example because the name has a doctrine in it. Pentecostal churches that were born in the Pentecostal revivals with thousands of people being filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in the tongues now say, it's a nice option. You know, there's one, one of the, the largest Pentecostal organizations in the world requests it or it's, they, it's, you must have received the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking of the tongues to apply to be a licensed minister which is good but if you're not going to be a licensed minister it's kind of one of those things that it's like having power steering you can pay with extra and have it in your car but you don't really need it for the journey but if we are going to say we are Pentecostal if we are going to say that we're apostolic we need to be able to say what that means why it means what it means and how we apply it When we talk about apostolic lifestyle, we have to look at how we apply the teaching of the apostles in 2015. I'm grateful when I go on mission trips. I'm not on boats like the Apostle Paul. Not getting shipwrecked on Crete and making fires and getting bitten by snakes. I like aeroplanes. Although some of the ones I fly in Indonesia is probably better off in a boat. But we, we have to be able to say what they taught and find a way to apply it to our present day context but we must always do so honestly from the word of god we can never use 
our present day context to excuse ourselves from wanting to have a complete apostolic identity. Amen. So our goal over these next few Sundays is going to be to bring understanding. For some of us, it might be new understanding. I hope it is. Some of us will be great understanding. Some of us will just reaffirm what we already believe about why we believe what we believe and why we do what we do. And to honestly assess our claim to an apostolic identity. I want to have everything the apostles had in terms of their doctrine. I'm not interested in being stoned or imprisoned or shipwrecked. But if we see the kind of miracles that they saw as this world spirals into wickedness, if you get thrown into prison like Paul and Silas and at the midnight hour, God begins to shake that thing and there's a revival in that jail, then God help us to have enough identity to know who we are. That whether we're in the prison or whether we live in freedom and liberty, that we know who we are and it does not change. Whether we're in Jerusalem, Samaria, Ephesus, or Corinth. You see, whenever Paul went to any city, the first thing he did was he looked for a synagogue. He went to the Jews. He tried to preach to his brethren. Most of the time that went really badly. And so he went out to the streets, went down to the riverbank and preached to a lady named Lydia and her house was converted. They began to have church in her house. And he dealt with whatever culture threw at him because he knew who he was. Let's stand together this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I want everything God wants us to have. I'm not interested in coming to the house of God just to talk about what happened before. It's good because we love those stories from the Word of God. But I want present-day testimonies that parallel with Book of Acts testimonies. When we teach doctrine, when we open this Bible, and we say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. If Paul was here, I'd want him to stand and say, Amen, brother, that's right. If Peter was here, I'd want him to say, There is still no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus.